So uh, we are about to pick back up in our series, the, the Sojourner's Guide. And we're coming to this pivotal moment in this letter that Peter has written to the early church in what is now modern day Turkey. And so far we see Peter reminding these brothers and sisters about their identity in face of their circumstances more than he's actually taking the time to instruct them on how they're supposed to be living. And if you haven't been with us and you want, you can go back and listen to the podcasts that from the last three weeks up until now that give us a little bit of uh, story and context. And, but I'm gonna do my best to recap what we've covered to this point. And, um, you know, and as I've been wrestling through this book and preparing for this lesson, but hearing all the other sermons we've, we've listened to at this point, there's this tension that I feel that we have some really contextual challenges for us to help us really understand what Peter is writing. And the first one and the most glaring one to me is that we live in a Christian society here in Nashville. And sometimes it feels like we're moving towards this post-Christian culture and that's real. But Nashville, Tennessee is very much a Christian culture. And what I mean by that is that um, most people are either understanding or welcoming or not put off by your Christian faith, right? And that's very different than what this first, this first century church was, experienced, that Pe- was experiencing that Peter was writing to. And, and I was trying to think of what is this, how do I paint this picture for us? And many of you here, or you know our friends Chris and Allison Wilkinson. Uh, they, they moved back to England a couple months ago. Chris is from England. They've been part of our Marathon family for a few years now. Uh, circumstantially, they had to come back this last week for Allison to get her work visa approved. And we were catching up with them. And I just remember listening to story after story that they were telling where I could see that their devotion to God was isolating, isolating them from the world that they now live in. And then for them in this culture to identify as Christian and in, in some way to like kind of out yourself and set yourself apart from the culture that you're in, or even just when somebody knows that you are going to church that day, it paints you in an unpopular light in their mind. That's just kind of how it works. And I'm reminded that their every day makes them feel like foreigners, even though this is the place that Chris was born. And there's something about when Chris placed his faith in Jesus that has really changed how he is now viewed by his own culture. And that is the reality that for many of us is really hard to understand. And that's who Peter is writing to. And not many of us really understand the things that Peter is saying on this level because here in our Southern Bible Belt Christian culture, we are so, we so often miss the power found in this picture that Peter is painting because for these believers in the early church, our, uh, our lack of opposition kind of lulls us to sleep where they, it woke them up. And so our greatest, our greatest danger isn't that we, we don't want to engage in God's mission because of persecution and suffering. It's often that we actually convince ourselves we are engaging in the mission of God, but the fact is we've left him out of the mission. And this happens all the time within our own cultures, right? It happens to me all the time. I, I work every day in college ministry with college students, and so often my work can become routine with spiritual discipline where I'm tempted to take 
what is said right here in scripture and repackage it and put a bow on it and try and give it to you or to my students and I don't let it transform my own heart. Like we do that all the time in this day and age. But in so many ways, the challenges that we face are not because people misunderstand us as followers of Jesus, but rather that we find ourselves content living in these spiritual rhythms and disciplines that we are often sometimes unable to see how disconnected we've become from God and from one another because of the good things we're busy doing, right? So the result can be a lot of things, but two really glaring results that I think we see throughout history is that we can become communities or churches that are silent in the face of injustice, as we saw throughout some of the civil rights movement and even still today, it's easier to disengage and unplug than it is to engage in the brokenness of the world. The other reality is we have lots of communities sometimes where we don't have a vision for life in God's kingdom beyond this hour that we share together each week. And we are like, none of us, none of us are immune to this reality of the culture that we live in because there is very little opposition to our heart's desire to love and follow Jesus. But I wanna highlight that what we can learn from Peter is so important. And although our situation and our context is really different, the solutions share the same principle. The work of God moves through the people of God who are built on the foundation of God. That's the foundation of what Peter's writing to this church that means just as much to them as it does to us. The work of God moves through the people of God who are built on the foundation of God. So Peter paints this picture for these early Christians who no longer belong to their own culture, but he reminds them that they belong to Jesus and their identity and their purpose are derived from him. And I think what he is saying can do the same thing for us, but we miss it because we often don't spend a whole lot of time questioning where our identity lies or where we find our purpose. Two weeks ago, Andrew spoke about this hope that Peter writes about that we as believers have in our suffering and persecution because of Jesus. And he reminds those that will read this that through the mercy of Jesus, we have been born again into this new life with a living hope, right? And he says that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, our circumstances, our suffering, and our persecution can all be used for our growth, our maturation, and at the same time for God's glory. And then last week, Brandon taught uh, the next movement in Peter's letter that speaks to their identity as Christians in this call to become a holy and set apart people. He's speaking to them in their cultural context, encouraging them not to be, not to be pulled back in to the currents of their culture that were not in line with living as people who now belong to God's kingdom. And, and he's encouraging them that their new standard of living is found in the example in the life of Jesus. There's a, that line he says, do not go back to your former ignorance, right? And so in, in this encouragement to not get swept up in what is culturally acceptable there, he also encourages them, don't, don't blend your cultural norms with this gospel message. You are to be holy and set apart. And then what happens next is where we find ourselves 
here, Peter reminds them that they are not, individu- not simply individuals saved by Christ, but now they fully belong to a family that has been built up by Christ. And so this is where we pick up in First Peter 2, uh, starting in verse 4. He writes, As you come to him, the living stone, that is Jesus, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Let's take a moment and and stop to unpack that because what Peter is saying in these two verses is, is a lot. Like the first thing is he's using Old Testament imagery to paint this New Testament reality to these mostly non-Jewish Christians, but it also reinforces some very important truths to any Jewish Christians that would have been present there. And in many ways, he is saying the same thing that John says in the beginning of his gospel, right? He says it, but he's saying it in a way that these Gentile or these non-Jewish Christians would understand. So what John says in chapter one, when he says, the word became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us, and we have seen the fullness of his glory as of the only Son sent from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from this fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Imagine that context to somebody who never grown up in a Jewish temple, right? Because what John does in that moment, when he says Jesus, when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, he uses a word, dwelt. And that word is actually the same word for tented or tabernacled. So essentially, John says, the word became flesh and he made himself to be the temple holding the presence of God among us. And that's significant because for the Jewish culture, the temple was always the place where God's presence presence dwelled. But this, this is not how Peter translates or says this new story to these non-Jewish Christians. But what he's saying He's saying that now through Jesus's death and resurrection, the presence is not only found in Jesus, but is shared with all who believe. The kingdom of God, the temple and the tabernacle is now expanding to fill the whole earth. And if we don't understand their context, we're gonna miss something really important about belonging because he is changing the way that both a Jewish Christian and a non-Jewish Christian see and understand the temple of God. This was something that was absolutely central to any Jewish Christian's belief was that God dwelt in his temple, right? And the the rest of that tension between Jewish and non-Jewish Christians of this time were that there was still this conversation of do new believers who are non-Jewish need to become more Jewish to actually be better Christians? So do they need to change their diet? Do Do they need to get circumcised to actually belong to the family of God, and you read all of Peter and Paul's letters, and it's no, it's like you come to him as you are and you belong. But in that moment, they were wrestling with almost the same thing that we wrestle with, is as you hunger to come to God, what would we desire of you to clean up or change? And he changes this reality because many of the reasons that Jewish people like felt like circumcision was so important was because in the temple, as they saw it before Jesus got there, anyone who wasn't circumcised 
who was longing to get close to the presence of God could get no further than the outer courts. They were not welcome beyond the outer courts into the inner courts, into the holy of holies where God's presence dwelled. So what they're hearing, what they're hearing in this moment is that with Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection is that the veil of the holies of holies has been torn into and the new dwelling place of God is found in the people of God and that invitation is for them as well. This is people who've been placed on the outside their whole life of the temple of God are being said, now you have full access and full authority. So the imagery that Peter uses here, it's, it's different from what John does, but it's absolutely enough to know that Peter is writing about the temple. It's unique because he essentially says that you are being built into a spiritual house, not the tent or tabernacle like John uses, but but he uses the function of the people who are being built up into this new temple or into this spiritual house to identify it as the temple because those who make it up are a holy priesthood. They are the servants of the temple and they are offering spiritual sacrifices. They are serving as the function of the temple, preparing a space for people to encounter God And all of this is made acceptable or possible, as Peter writes, through Jesus Christ. And this is the fundamental, most important reality that these believers could hear is that the temple is no longer a place or a building, it's a family. And if these sojourners who no longer even feel like they belong to their own culture have just been told that they have ultimate access and purpose in God's kingdom in the new temple of God, imagine how that would make them feel about the gospel message. And conversely, if this temple is no longer a building and it's now a family, everyone who belongs has a part and a purpose. Everyone has something to contribute. You know, I'm reminded of a a group of friends that I lived with before I got married. I don't know if anyone knows Joshua Soloway. He's the campus pastor at our Hillsborough Village location, but Joshua and I actually shared a room. And this is just a fun fact. I've probably had more roommates than anyone in this room. I have had five roommates since being married and none of them are my wife. Um, and, And it's just this reality, like I get to see time and time again, starting with, with Joshua that these moments where I would pitch my hammock, we were like hung our Eno in our room and that was kind of like our counseling space. One of us would sit in the hammock and listen and the other one took the posture on the floor of beat up and broken and would just pour their hearts out. And whatever I might've said to Joshua that night, it was like without fail the next day that I would be on the floor and he would be in the hammock And he would say the same message, the same truth back to me in my own brokenness. And there's this reality where we were constantly serving each other the truth of the gospel, even if it was the exact same gospel. And that's just one example of like hundreds that I could share. But from personal experience, I see time and time again, there is something very powerful when living in the same space becomes so much more than a place to sleep and it becomes a place of belonging. And it gets infinitely more powerful 
when that space isn't just a place that you belong, but that place helps you discover and live into your kingdom purpose. We can see the same example within marriage, in our families. Um, you know, I think this is so true. When I think of a couple who's just gotten engaged, there's something very different about that couple who has a vision beyond their wedding day. If the vision ends with the wedding, I'm always a little bit concerned, but if that vision already includes how they're gonna live life together, something inside me gets so excited, right? And then I know too, like, um, I have a, a son on the way and I could do all the right things for my son, but if I don't, like, if I don't give him the primary thing that he will desire my heart, I'm missing the opportunity to share that space with him. You know, and so this is kind of what Peter is getting at. The, the temple no longer being a building and is now a family, it is for everyone who comes to Jesus. And in that, they not only belong, but they can find purpose. And in some ways, like even they in this moment had to ask, like, how does this new temple work? I think we still ask that because we, we can get stuck in wondering how do we build kingdom community? And that's where he goes next. He, he picks back up in verses six through eight. And he, he starts to quote scripture that has been referenced to Jesus. Even Jesus uses scripture to reference himself. He says, starting in verse six, for in scripture it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a stone that is chosen and precious, the cornerstone, the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message or the word, which is also what they were destined for. The analogy here for those hearing this is, is very vivid and very simple. The cornerstone is the fundamental piece of every structure during this period. Any temple, any large building, right, always began with the cornerstone, this massive rock that ultimately would determine each stone that would be laid after it. And for those who believe, this stone is not only precious, it's priceless, it's, it's everything. It's what all stones after it take their direction from and without it, we can't even begin to build. So think of it this way in our context, right? The foundation determines the shape and the strength of any building. It would be wise for you not to build beyond your foundation. And, and also, if, if this foundation isn't level or its, or its strength has been compromised, the whole building is in jeopardy right? And so this is what Peter is saying. He's saying, as you place the cornerstone down, the foundation that everything will take its shape and its strength from, every other stone is then added in reference to this one stone. If the next stone didn't share the, like, the appropriate angle, if it wasn't equal in height or level, it wasn't used, and what Peter is telling us in regards to the spiritual house and family that he is building up as we come to him is not that we determine 
what the building or the family looks like. He does. And as we come to him believing not only in his words, but in his redeeming work, we are being built up by him, assuming the position of humble servant for him and acting on behalf of the people that God desires to encounter. He is building it up. We are coming to him in service and he is using us actively to create a space for people to encounter God. There's also this sad truth that he touches on. He says that for those who do not believe, this stone has become a stumbling block or a rock of offense. And he says, we cannot build a structure that is better than perfect. We cannot pick and choose how we want to interact with Jesus and how he's building our community and our church. And this is the offensive part. It's either we surrender to the leadership of Jesus and we all take our positions from him in his work, or we try to assume his role and convince ourselves that we can do this better than he can. And this is what's so offensive for those who do not believe or even for us who try to do the mission of God without God in it, is that we cannot reap the benefits of the kingdom without living under the authority of the king. We cannot reap the benefits of living in the kingdom of God unless we surrender to the leadership of the King Jesus. This sounds harsher. I think Peter's words sounds, sound harsher than I think it was meant to be received. But I think he's painting this really simple truth that when we try to build on anything other than Jesus as the foundation, we become offended, we trip, and fall because we we refuse to take our shape and our form from him. That's the, as you were destined for, anyone working in the mission of God without God is destined for some stumbling. You know, uh, going back to the analogy of living with Joshua and all of our roommates, there were these times where the dishes would be piled like beyond ceiling height. And there's times where the trash hadn't been taken out for, you know, we will say three weeks, but surely the truth, it could be 10 times that, who knows? Um, and, and nobody knows whose turn it is to mow the yard, right? There's that moment. And in that space, there are two type of responses to that tension. There's one that takes its directives from Jesus and one that does not. And these passive aggressive comments like left us so frustrated because one, it wasn't God honoring, but two, we were frustrated that God wasn't fixing our problems under our terms and the ways in which we were not engaging well with our roommates or each other, right? But then we saw this reality that sitting down, taking our directives from Jesus, we could somehow make doing the dishes about the gospel. And I I use that example because there was a time with Joshua years after we lived together where he mentioned, like, I didn't realize that dishes could be so gospel-centered. And something changed where we began, it wasn't perfect and it it took time, but there's this new standard that was set where it's not how much does this affect me, it's how much can I serve my roommates. And there's enough of us with this vision for humble servanthood 
that the reality was, hey, we understand everyone's busy. So not only are we gonna make a commitment to do our dishes as best we can, we're gonna make our, a commitment to do a few extra because we love each other. The end of Peter's passage kind of takes us beyond the methods of God into the, the purpose, the why behind what he does, even the, you know, the why behind doing the dishes, so to speak. And so why in God's redeeming work of the world does he empower his people as priests and dwell among each and every one of us? And I don't really think there's any better verses in scripture that capture the purpose of the church than right here in what Peter says in verses nine and 10. He begins with this reinforcement of their identity as the people of God who align themselves with the method of God. And this is what he says, he writes, but you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's very special possession, that you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. in that kind of that moment of reflecting on what happens when we miss it, Peter gets us back on track and he says, but you, he says, but for you who believe, you are a chosen people. You have been grafted into the covenanted family of Israel, you Gentile Christians who couldn't come into the temple. He's saying, you are a royal priesthood, all of you together your purpose and your identity and your authority are to prepare the space for others to encounter God. You are a holy nation. I love what he says here. He says, you no longer, or no longer does your primary identity have to be black, white, Asian, Hispanic, American, Canadian, Mexican. You know, while these are true and they are good, he is saying that even above this beautiful expression of God's diversity in all of creation, he says that you are first a set apart and holy people of God. And then he says, you are God's very special possession. And this word, special possession, it's one word in the Greek, and it is, you are God's treasure. You, exile, sojourner, person who does not even feel welcome in his own culture or family, you are the deepest desire of God's heart. And at the end of it, it's because that is who our God is. And this is where the function of the church begins to take its form. Our identity rooted not in who we are or what we've done, but fully understanding who we are because of his work and who he is. This results in our primary purpose as the people of God who gather together, worship. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That all, all may see and know that once you did not have a family, but now you are part of God's family. And once you were destined for wrath, but now your salvation is secure. 
You guys, when, when the church moves away from its identity in, this, in its structure or in its name, it no longer limits the walls in which, it's no longer limited to the walls in which it meets. And those around us see the life that, see that life with Jesus is so much more than a set of religious rules and disciplines, but a life that is full of purpose and joy that, even, that overshadow even the most difficult and challenging situations. God's desire is that through his people, worship would fill the earth and this kingdom of redemption and justice and mercy and love would expand because his people can see the work of God in the lives of the people that they're around. And conversely, that the people who do not know him will see the work of God in the lives of people who declare that they love him. And I'm, I'm reminded of another particular season where I shared a house with three guys. And by the end of the next two years, we were actually living with seven of us and a rescue dog in a four bedroom house. And what began with a vision to be in community with one another and not just knowing what the scripture says, but somehow desiring to see it come alive, it did something to all of us that none of us expected, that we didn't plan for. Um, it made us really uncomfortable. We didn't get together and say, hey, we wanna make this the most uncomfortable living situation possible. Because if you've done that, we'll talk about vision later, but that's not how you start, right? Um, you know, it kept us late at night, talking about doubt, fear, brokenness in our relationships, but it also invited others to belong. There were the others who were struggling with their marriage, a friend of ours who's going through a really difficult time. And through this process of navigating divorce, he just crashed with us for four months. There's others who lost their job and didn't have transportation. And then there was this like very real part of our home for about two months. There were two kids from down the street that absolutely were a part of our family. And we, we like met their parents once in those two months. I mean, we're talking like, bro, you got to go home. It's 10 p.m. And we would take them home and there was nobody there. And like, there's this reality that everything was disrupted by our commitment to each other, but more than anything, to letting God consume that home. You know, although this season was really challenging, I think I could speak for each of us in that space that this was one of the most transformative years of our life that prepared us not just to be husbands and fathers and people in our churches, but really just shaped us with a vision to be reflections of Jesus to the world. And I want, honestly, if there's one thing that I think that we cannot miss in this passage, it's this. I'm gonna use church fellowship, but I'm gonna say like Christian community. And I will go so far as to say church membership because to love Jesus is to love the body. Church fellowship, Christian fellowship is not an optional perk that we can choose to, choose to ignore. We can pick or choose whether we want it or not. It is the calling of every Christ follower. Church fellowship is not an optional perk that we can choose or ignore. It is the calling of every follower of Jesus. If we show up each, if we show up each Sunday and we expect only to receive from God, you guys, we do not understand fellowship or worship. The family of God functions according to Peter when it orders 
its life around Jesus, to live like Jesus and to give back to God and worship what he has so generously given to us. We live to declare to the world what God has done in us and for us. And then we live faithfully in this temporary moment as sojourners, maybe as exiles, for the redemption of the world around us. And this is the pivoting point. All that we do comes not just from knowing our identity and where it is derived, but being secure in it. Peter is going to begin to speak to some very specific cultural challenges that these early Christians faced in their society, things that did not celebrate the, their, elite, their, uh, their commitment to Jesus, and honestly, anything that did not look like allegiance to the Roman leadership was looked down upon, and this was always um, at conflict with their desire to follow Christ. And when I think about what is this passage really asking from us here in our brown plastic chairs, right, in Nashville, Tennessee. I think one of the primary needs for us in our churches is that we ask ourselves, what are we really ordering our lives around? What am I ordering my marriage around? What am I ordering my job or my career around? Or maybe with our roommates, what are we building our community on? It's really subtle. It doesn't even necessarily mean that there's gonna be this big structural change, but I think that for each of us, we are all missing opportunities to see God's kingdom expand because we've been lulled to sleep on what is our purpose because we're still engaging with the good things, good things of God without necessarily considering the heart of God. We can do our jobs well, but we can miss being a source of joy and redemption in our workplace just because we aren't looking for it. You know, I can check all of the boxes I need to be as this soon-to-be father and miss the fact that I can give in my heart, I can love this little boy like Jesus does. And what I know to be true about life with Jesus, the Christian life, is always one of community. Following Jesus has always been an example of beautiful interdependence on one another and that we recognize the really good gift it is to have others who thrive in areas that I do not, but those people share the same love for God and his people that I do. That is a good gift. If all of you were like me, we would, if Brandon and Andrew were like me, you'd get these nerdy sermons all the time. They're much better storytellers. I'm like, hey, I'll, I'll leave it here. Let's talk about Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians for three hours, and I will bore you to death but thank God they are not like that. Um, but thank God that we do like, have these moments where we just dive as deep as we can. I also just think of like worship, like thank God we've got gifted worship leaders. Thank God that we have people who just love to serve. They don't ever wanna have a microphone in their hand. They don't ever wanna be seen, but they just know that they wanna belong and that you guys, you do. And this is the picture of the church that Peter is painting is thank God that we are not all the same, but thank God that our hearts are being set on the same vision and purpose as the people of God. You know, I think what Peter is saying at the heart of this message as he's writing to a group of people to encourage them to be like Jesus for the purpose of seeing their communities transformed, 
he's reminding them that God's end goal and his love for you is always redemption of those around you. God's end goal and his love for you is always the redemption of the community that you're in. And that's what Peter is writing to these first century Christians that don't belong to their culture. And I just, uh, in teaching team, Douglas brought up this really cool analogy where you look at Genesis and it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was chaos and full, uh, or sorry, and was voidless and full of chaos. And it said, the spirit of God hovered over the waters. Right after that, God creates the garden. He puts his, his temple right there in Eden and he dwells with his creation. And you move forward through the narrative of scripture where there is separation and brokenness and sin and then Jesus comes and redeems and he's doing the same thing that he did in creation where he was hovering over the waters, the spirit of God, but now it's the hands of God empowered by the spirit of God that are expanding the temple of God in all areas of the earth. It's like we are being commissioned by God as the spirit of God so that his kingdom would expand. Anyone who doesn't feel like they belong can find their belonging in Jesus. And I know sometimes that sounds like it may be, that may be too simple of a statement. And I, will, I would love, love to talk with anybody who has a question about that afterwards. But when our lives are being built and our churches are being built around Jesus as the cornerstone, just remember, we do not pick who's in and who's out. We don't, pick up who we don't pick who shows up and who doesn't. We can't make anyone hungry to live into God's kingdom. But if we are careful, we are gonna miss the opportunities to engage with those who are. And my prayer for us here in Nashville, here at Marathon, is that we become a place where people that see all that God has done as it is expressed in our worship together. And that when we leave this space, our love for the city and its most vulnerable is what builds our community from week to week. That is my prayer. You know, so I'm gonna close our time with some just thoughts that we can reflect on from Peter. I'm gonna send you guys to communion with a few things that you can talk about, but I'm gonna unpack those. I know Nick is gonna put those on the board so that, uh, or someone is gonna put some of those questions up for us as we go through them. But the first is, with the people you came with or with some friends, where is God inviting you to belong and participate in his family? That may or may not mean that you need to be deeply connected here at Ethos, but if you don't have a place of connection, we have a lot of communities that meet each week throughout the year. This summer, it's grow classes, and starting in the fall, it'll be small groups, and we call them house churches. If you wanna get plugged in, there's gonna be someone back there by the connect board if you wanna talk to them either during our communion time or afterwards. The next question is, where may God be challenging you to think differently about how you work, about, sorry, about how you work or your work? Think differently here at church or in your neighborhood or maybe even in your own family. And the heart behind that question is how are you ordering your lives around any or each of those things? You know, and there's this other reality. We don't pretend to know where everyone's at in their spiritual journey. Um, but we want you to know that if, there, if there's anything that's heavy or weighty and you're really feeling the struggle to understand Peter's words of stepping out of this darkness into his marvelous light, we're gonna have 
people back at the Respond banner who wanna talk and pray. Um, but you can also bring that up within your own community at communion is, hey, I, 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 I get this invitation is really beautiful, but I am not knowing what does it look like to step out of this darkness into his marvelous light. Praise feels hard for me right now, and that is okay. And, and honestly, if you are just a visitor and you, you don't know what it means to be a Christian and you just wanna talk about some of the things that were said today, there'll be more of us. I'll be back by the Respond banner. I'd love, love to help answer any questions. I know it was a little nerdy today with a lot of words, Gentile, non-Jewish, tabernacle, tented, all of that. If you wanna talk about that, I'll be in the back um, to help just engage. And we are just glad that you're here. Um, so what I'm gonna do, kind of as a reflection of this heart that Peter is writing, I want us to stand up and I'd love, if you feel comfortable, go ahead and grab the hand of the person next to you. And, and if you do not want to, I will tell you now it is okay. The signal is you put your hands right here in your armpits <laughs> and no one will grab your hand. No, but, but just in a reflection of Peter's letter to this church saying that the temple of God is being built and sent through the, the family of God on the foundation of God. I just wanna pray that for us. So, um, and after I pray, we're just gonna go straight into communion. Father, we, we stand in awe of your intentionality and your goodness in bringing your people together. And I pray for us as a church family here at Marathon, God, that we would see this new reality, this new temple truth that, God, you have not only invited us into belonging and extended your good gifts to us, but God, that you have been waiting to see each of us come alive in the reality that all that you have done for us is out of this deep love that you wanna create, not just a space for us to belong, but a place where we can thrive and become fully alive and that we can see your mission of God expand through the world, not because of anything we've done, but that we know 100% it's a reflection of the work that you have done in our lives. God, we, uh, we lift up the many questions of, I don't know how to do this well in my family, in my church. I have no vision for this. God, we know that you are supremely sufficient, but in that area of, I don't know what to do next. God, I pray that this family would come around each other as we encourage each other to step deeper and deeper into your kingdom. And God, where there are legitimate pain and hurts and roadblocks to feeling like this is true, we just pray that your truth and your presence would show up, pushing out any fear, any doubt of your existence or of this invitation into belonging. And God, we ask again that you would use us as brothers, of, brothers and sisters of one another to see that reality come to light. God, we love you. And Jesus, we thank you that it is because of your death and resurrection that this truth is for us. It's through you, Lord, that we give thanks and we pray. Amen.